Prince Remembered from The Current. Hey, this is Sean McPherson of Purple Current and The Current. On the 30th anniversary of Prince's Diamonds and Pearls album, I had the chance to talk to drummer Michael Bland and keyboardist Tommy Barbarella of the new Power Generation to compare notes and to share memories of recording Diamonds and Pearls, working with Prince, and being part of a great band and the lively Minneapolis music scene. Here's our conversation. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having us. My pleasure. We're talking about Diamonds and Pearls, which is a pretty incredible milestone for this record that y'all were heavily involved in. There's certainly a lot of records in Prince's catalog where there's a band with them, but they weren't in the studio. They weren't involved that much until the tour started. This is a different story. What are your favorite memories? I'll start with uh, Michael. What's your favorite memories of the recording sessions for this album? I guess that my earliest memory was just that Sonny and Tommy and I were in a different project that Prince was running. Uh, he had made a solo record with, with Margie Cox, and we were going to be like her backing band. And so I was basically doing double duty. I was already in Prince's band and also in Margaret's band. And we were rehearsing at Paisley one day, and Prince comes downstairs just as Sonny and Tommy and I were leaving. And uh, he had this idea for a song. He's like, do you have a minute to help me work this out? And we weren't in a particular hurry. We were just headed downtown. I think we were going to eat and then maybe go down to Bunkers. And it was a Monday night. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's 6 o'clock. I mean, we don't have to be anywhere for, for a while. So we stayed long enough to work out the song. And then Prince was like, well, can we just record it quick before you guys leave? So then we just moved the operation into Studio B. And recorded it. And it, I think it was the first time that he recorded with the three of us together, with Tommy and Sonny and I. And uh, it went quick. It was efficient. He was very open to the creative energy that was around. And that song was Diamonds and Pearls, actually. And it went so well that um, he sent his, <laughs> his bodyguards down to bunkers later on that night. And they, Prince wants you guys to come uh, back out to the studio once you guys are finished. So we went right back out to Paisley Park and recorded uh, a song called Live for Love, which is the last song on the record. So I guess before that, I had done a few sessions where it was just Prince and I. Uh, he'd just play piano and just kind of tell me when the changes were coming and so on and so forth. But it was it was still early in our recording relationship. But that was a that was a major move, because um, quite a few songs on that record were really like live performances in the studio. Cream, Jughead, uh, just Diamonds and Pearls. We were talking about Live for Love. I think Willing um, and Abel is that mainly live as well, or is Willing that... and Abel was. Yeah, yeah. I don't I remember. Kirk, to... I remember Kirk in the uh, in the other booth in Studio the A. Congas? Yep, that was Willing um, and Abel. I don't know if we want to. <laughs> I don't know if I want to match which with Rella, but I, I have a different recollection. Uh, well, that's the, that's the interesting part. That's why I wanted to do it with you, because we all remember things differently. Yeah. Um, and that's what's crazy about the time with Prince. It was like so much happened every day that you remember certain things. Memory's a funny thing. and then But then when we get around the other guys, it's like, you remember this? No, but I remember this. Everyone remembers different things. And... Yeah, it's, see, my, my memory of, of, of Willing and Able, I, what I recall is recording the basic track for Willing and Able 
Money Doesn't Matter tonight and um, strolling on uh, a particular evening in Tokyo at uh, the Sony Recording Studios. It was at the end of the nude tour. Japan was the last stop. And I had the stomach flu and I was trying to stay in my room until the show started. But Prince got bored and booked the studio. And it was Levi and Prince and I in this little studio recording the basics for that. <laughs> what you're probably remembering, Tommy, is one of those instances where we recut something for the sake of... Uh, there were so many times where we went and re-recorded things. I think that you're probably remembering... Uh, well, no, that wouldn't have been the NBA thing we did. No, because the the main uh, guitar part on the, the song, that arpeggio, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, that's me on a Korg T3. I remember the patch. It was like the nylon guitar patch. I believe you be played it. I, I, I'm not questioning the fact that you, you... I thought we were all there. That's what I'm saying. Is I, I remember like having anxiety about leaving my room because... <laughs> because... <Yeah. laughs> trying to stay well, in a comfortable environment because things were happening. I went over there and, and it was like, you know when you get sick and you feel like you're bumping into yourself? Uh -huh. Like it was full on, like it, I was that sick and trying to stay in my hotel room in, in Tokyo. And I think the same night that I cut the basic with Prince and Levi for Will and Abel, Strolling and uh, Money Don't Matter Tonight, we also recorded a rough demo of a song called Five Women for Joe Cocker. Like it was one of these situations where it's like Prince just had these ideas and they kept coming and I was trying to get out of there as quick as possible. And every time I hear Will and Abel, I'm telling you, I have a physical response. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not you don't forget. Yes. And I'm not again, I'm not saying this in the interest of dispute. What I'm saying is that maybe we were there and this got squeezed in somewhere in between the process, like where you recorded on it. It's like yeah, there's so much happening. That. So much happening all the time that I think it would be impossible for any of us to remember 100% yeah. of what went down. But you remember the sessions in the Studio A where you were in the drum room, Kirk had a percussion set up in the other ISO room. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That happened all, all the time. I mean, right between Diamonds and Pearls and the Cymbal album, that was the yeah. main setup from, from looking out from the, the ISO booth for the drums. Levi was always sitting over here. Sonny was sitting on this side of the window for me. I think you were always on like the studio, like left-hand side, like that rig was set up. And uh, Prince on piano often, but sometimes on guitar. Yeah. And Kirk next door. And then I remember like, even like Jughead was like, Rosie was in one of the, the airlocks with a microphone. And like Tony, Damon, and Kirk were in another one. Mm -hmm. Like it was, that was like full on live recording, you know, in an era where a lot of people had already given it up. They weren't recording like that anymore. You know, I have a question. I want to point towards Tommy. What do you think made him want to widen the circle and get, you know, somebody in the percussion room and Rosie Gaines and all, all the money, all the headaches, all the scheduling that comes with that. What do you think prompted Prince to make this such an ensemble period in his career? Well, I think two things. I think one, he assembled this band. Um, you know, he, he wanted, he made music all the time. So 
he had a band of folks who are always going to be around who could play anything, you know? So I, I think more, more than anything, this, you know, this band was capable of actualizing his most complicated ideas. It's like, there wasn't much he could throw at us that we couldn't actualize. And, you know, he loved that. So we were in town and we were always around. And so having that access, that's what he wanted. And um, it's what he needed, you know, and I think what we all brought to the, the table, it just widened his palette, so to speak, of what what his, his sound is, what he could do. Um, and the other thing is, he, I think he was always trying to um, recreate Sly and the Family Stone. He always wanted that mix, that mixed up band that was a great band, but um, had the different elements, had the different voices, uh, people coming from different places and throwing it all together into the mix. I'm chatting with two esteemed members of New Power Generation and also incredibly elite players in the world history, but certainly in Minneapolis history as well, and the reputation of New Power Generation. And a little bit of what you were just talking about, Tommy, it does make me realize that you guys were top flight here and remain top flight internationally. In a way, this is no knock on the revolution, but y'all have gotten different phone calls in your career as far as what you can bring being able to play at the highest levels Prince could imagine. Now, my question about that is, do you think that having more cooks in the kitchen made it faster or slower? I think definitely faster for him. I mean, someone dug up a Carmen Electra song the other day and shot it over to me and like, remember this? And uh, <laughs> Steve Noonan, engineers, like, did we record that in, what was that, Olympia in London or mm. at Paisley? I'm like, I don't remember, honestly. I but I remember cutting about half that. I thought, again, who knows what's true, but I remember cutting half that record in like one day in Studio A, and we didn't know what it was or who it was for. It was just tracks. And uh, but yeah, the speed with, that we could turn stuff out was um, what was the question? Oh, too many cooks in the kitchen. It's like yeah, yeah. It was definitely efficient because we all also knew our place, you know, he was calling the shots and if he didn't like your ideas, you wouldn't use them. He would often send me into the studio after the fact, because we would cut basics. Then he'd go in and use what he liked and replace what he didn't like or add stuff. Um, but sometimes he would send me in to do that very same thing. He's like, go in and produce up this track that we just cut or maybe an old track. And, you know, at the time I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe this. He's, trusting me to do this and um and, and then the next day it'd be like well what'd you think did you like that i remember one time it was um that song old friends for sale and i was like i'd heard about this song because i think it was on the black album or something originally but i was just the song the title it was like wow i can't wait i'd never heard the song i just heard about it and then he sends me into the studio to replay the piano part for it and this is in my first year or two and i was just like holy crap I can't believe this opportunity. I spent all night, you know, a million takes of that piano track. And the next day I couldn't wait. I'm like, what'd you think? What'd you think? He's like, you played too hard. And I was like, damn. <laughs> and then after the fact, I was like, yeah, he was probably right. He was always right, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah. he would take what, what he wanted. And cause he could do anything you could do, but he was looking for something different you would bring. Michael, when you guys hit the road, what what became even more exciting to do in a live setting from that record, from Diamonds and Pearls? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's difficult to 
explain the like the process the the like the transition from studio to to live i mean we sometimes it went the other way so a lot of ideas were conceived while we were just jamming around just knocking around things so i'm not sure honestly how to answer that question because it didn't just work the one way some things started in the studio some things started on stage sometimes we just something would happen and we'd be it's just this is and you know he'd go back and watch the the videotape like we got to do something with that groove right there you know i think that's how uh rock and roll is alive and it lives in minneapolis it happened oh. it was like he was running a tie line from the sound stage to studio a and he started talking to the audience we were it was we were jamming on get wild and he started talking to the audience and got them saying rock and roll is alive and it lives in minneapolis we look up He's ready to cut the song like the next day. So, you know what I mean? It's, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. Sean. I will say this is like the longer we rehearse something, even if it was a new song, the more it would evolve and change and get more complicated and more complex. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, before the Diamonds of Pearls tour, by the time that tour happened, some of those songs we'd been playing for a while, they were getting kind of old. So, he would just keep adding parts. I remember, you remember that chromatic rise to, to loop the chorus of diamonds and pearls oh yeah mm -hmm. and and then rosie would just soar it was yeah well, it's man. just there was a, a, with that much talent in the room there's so much you can do and so many ways you can change things from you know from performance to performance and prince had a very uh short sort of uh attention span right so we were always changing things up moving things around i love the quote that prince said if I'm bored, they're bored. So if if it's not moving me, I gotta I gotta make it interesting. I think that level of inventiveness paid off well throughout his career, but certainly um, in this era for sure. Uh, one of my favorite writers talking about Prince is a gentleman from New York named Miles Marshall Lewis, and he talks "Sign of the Times" kind of being the last record from Prince where he didn't directly engage with hip-hop and how big hip-hop and rap was becoming and that after that point there was either it was a, a response involving rap or a response sort of eschewing rap but that that was in the conversation as people who were in that of princes that has some of the most rapping on it how were you guys as an ensemble and prince in particular relating to what was happening uh, with hip-hop and rap at that time wow um i think i was still other than a handful of groups, I was not completely sold on hip hop as a movement or a thing. I mean, for me, it spelled the demise of my profession. <laughs> Samplers, you know, electronic drums and whatnot, loops and all that. So I had a I had a chip on my shoulder about it, you know. So ever since I saw the first, you know, the the first guy on a turntable, you know, rocking a rocking a whole room with, you know, and so I had beef with hip hop right away. <laughs> trying to try to get rid of me. But um I think that uh it's a lot easier to say what it was now than than at the time that we were doing it because we tried a lot of things that other people weren't trying at the time. In Prince's head somewhere he went, what if I had a band that sounded like hip hop, you know, with real instruments? And this is before the roots, you know? I think that a lot of the stuff that we were trying to do was influenced by, by hip-hop, definitely. I think Levi and Prince listened 
incessantly to what was going on industrially, and they bring it all in our direction, and we try to distill it into something more tangible, like less DJ-driven and more instrument-driven. And um, it's funny because um, I see see online people d- debating all the time about like this particular period in Prince's music, you know, and some people liked it, other people didn't. I've been speaking to Mike Howe about the re-release of Diamonds and Pearls they're working on. And my first question was, how do you think this stuff is going to age? You know, I mean, it was recorded not not in a vacuum, but in a completely different... It was a period different from any other period of Prince's canon, you know, let alone, like, what was it? What happened <laughs> at the time that we were doing it? I think... It's going to be interesting to see how they put it together, but I guess ultimately, you know, whether somebody's rapping or singing, my job's the same anyway. And I guess that's how I looked at it, other than just the fact that we were really there to just kind of not think of reasons why or why not. We were just there to get it done. So that was our general attitude. It's like, well, okay, Prince says, study Tramp, like really study how it drags and this and that. You know, Prince says, you know, go go out to the glam slam, go sit in the DJ booth, go see what the dudes spin it. A lot of that is just research, par for the course, so on and so forth. You know, and I had there were records that I liked, but um, yeah, generally it was um, you just kind of trying to make sense of it all, you know. And the only way you know whether what you're doing is right or wrong is what Prince has to say about it. Like, yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay, okay, I'm somewhere. I'm somewhere he approves of. So stay in that zone and, you know, do more of that. (laughs) Is that similar to your experience? New textures from hip hop and trying to integrate them in on the keyboard? Uh, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, these were, this was, well, Diamonds of Pearls era, uh, since we're talking about that, that was the early days of using samples live. So this is before people were running Pro Tools even before they were running tracks on a DAT tape, you know, we were doing everything live. We were triggering everything live. And um, so Daddy Pop, the first loop, I guess, Prince ever played with was played with my finger on a low F and I had to hold it the whole time. Right, because um, I didn't have the technology to run the loops back in right. my station yet. That right. came was, later. Uh, yeah, and Daddy Pop, I literally... And what what was that loop? That was uh that was um rock steady. Yeah, Bernard Bernard Prince. Prince. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and just you know vicious. So I'm holding yeah. that loop with one <laughs> finger. And then I put other samples nearby where I can hit with my other fingers, some other hits and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then with the other hand, I'm playing actual keyboard parts. And that kind of became a, a template for a lot of what we did at that time where mm-hmm. I was covering a lot of ground, but, um, you know, hitting samples and playing traditional keyboard parts. Yeah. And then as that evolved, by the end of my run, I was only playing samples. <laughs> right. Claire Fisher, orchestra samples. And <laughs> I mean, the funniest was that day. What was it? Uh, not Get Wild, but uh, maybe it was Get Wild. It was one of those where it was like, we jam it forever and like break it down. Tommy on the one, boom. And I would play all my parts. My right. parts were samples of him playing bass, 
and I'm playing guitar. And then he'd be like, yeah, Tommy's funky. And I'm like, literally just triggering samples. (laughs) (laughs) And that, my friend, is when I was like, I don't want to play any samples in this band. I just want to play real keyboard parts. Like, I'm only going to play Rhodes, Clav, Organ, or Whirly. That's all I'm going to do. And that's what I did. That was uh, the start of that hip-hop sample stuff. Yeah, and what's funny is the smaller the band got, the the more samples had to be <laughs> added to cover the ground. And, I mean, basically, the way I looked at it, Morris was playing like towards the end of the original run of the New Power Generation, when it was just like the four of us and Maite and Prince. Sonny, Tommy, Morris, me, Maite, Prince. That That group, like Gold Experience, come like that band. There was so much technology going on, uh, and program changes had had to happen so quick that it, uh, eventually, well, who was the company that made it? I think it was the MIDI Remote Control was made by Lexicon. Yeah, and we all had these things because our programmers couldn't keep up with how fast things would change during the show. I mean, we were Prince, we were pushing the technology to the brink. Yeah, sure. no sequencers, Sean. And I will say this, and, and it's kind of a dig, but somebody in wardrobe uh, went to work for Janet Jackson during that time and came back. You know what story I'm talking about, Tommy? Uh, it sounds familiar. Yeah, I can't remember what her name was, but she was like, I never knew how good you guys were. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I just did a month with Janet Jackson. She said, one day I decided to get down to wardrobe like an hour beforehand to organize some things. And I heard the band start playing, like soundcheck started. And she said to herself, what are they doing here already? And she said she ran out to the auditorium, you know, and there wasn't nobody on stage. (laughs) It was just the tracks playing. And I don't think I need to say much more about it, John. I'm just saying. (laughs) Found out that day that... We we were live and and Janet was Memorex at least at that time. <laughs> I am really honored to be joined by Tommy Barbarella and Michael Bland. We've covered a lot of ground around diamonds and pearls, and I want to talk about your influence. And I don't mean Prince's influence. I mean Michael Bland and Tommy Barbarella's influence on my generation of Minnesota musicians. And I think about this very elite, gospel-informed, R&B-aware, multi-genre thing. And just absolutely virtuosic chops. But who did you guys study? Like when you were trying to be the baddest band on earth, which you became, who were you studying to do that? Well, to me, it's like you didn't have to really even look that far. You're in Minneapolis. I mean, I remember the first day that I met Tommy. He was at the, it was at the fine line. Your hair was short and you had some dap shoes on (laughs) and and a woman with you. Yeah. A woman (laughs) and makeup. And you guys, you and Sonny were playing with the Steels. That's what happened. And I think that Prince also picked up on this synergy that was going on within the city. I mean, prior to then, I mean, the revolution was mostly people from Minneapolis. But that middle band, the Love Sexy band, the Sign of the Times band, all, almost all those people were from somewhere else. I mean, Levi and Sheila from yeah. California. I think Cat was from Chicago. Bonnie Boyer was from like San Francisco or Oakland, you know? So really, I think Prince just kind of kept after the Love Sexy tour and he came home, he just kept hanging around, going to see, you know, what was going on in the city. 
the Bunkers gig Bunkers started in part of 88, right? Yeah, so oh, 87 technically, but yeah. He yeah. came right in there and was like, oh, okay, you, 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 <laughs> not you. <laughs> and did the same with the Steels. Took Tommy and Sonny right out of the steel. I'll take those two dudes. Now I got something. <laughs> you know? Like, um, I guess that's the, the funny part is that I don't want to say that we were our own contemporaries, but I think that we already knew each other and had been working together before we met him. So you were listening to the people down the street and you were figuring out how to put it together and had a lot of great company. Tommy, was that kind of your world too? Or were you had more of your head in the in records from other scenes, et cetera? Well, I know the, the question you actually, it's interesting the way Michael answered it because what you're obviously asking is who are your influences? Who did you listen to? And that, and, and I can answer that too, but you know, what Michael said is interesting because it's like you ask anyone now and it's like, who is your influence? And it's who they watch on YouTube or, you know, digging. Mm -hmm. But in our era, you know, live music was all around us and you were inspired by, you're much more inspired by seeing someone up close in person live mm -hmm. with sweat running down their face and having your ears just blasted mm -hmm. than anything you'll ever see on YouTube. So we're lucky. We, we grew up in that era, you know, first time I sat in with the combo, got my ass handed to me it was like the greatest night of my life you know it was like it was brutal you know that's how we came up it was like you had to cut your teeth with your elders who mm -hmm. knew so much and were so good and um and that's what made you work really hard it's like and it was live or die it was like everything just meant so much it was like so oh, yeah. for so many years like i played like it was my last solo it was the last statement i would ever make and it just meant everything and and that's how that band played. And, you know, and that's how Prince always played, obviously, you know, you yeah. that intensity. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there is, there is that. Um, and I think that's a really unique thing and something that is lost on this generation. Now it's like, it just doesn't happen like that nearly as much. Um, well, also because yeah. it's so easy to see the, the most incredible things that have ever happened. <laughs> just go to YouTube and you can, you can get right. lost down any wormhole and see the most incredible. You can go go on there and watch a Corey Henry for you know <laughs> you get your mind blown for two yeah. hours straight just watching clips. <laughs> well, the crucible you know, but, that you came out of is really impressive. And uh, Tommy, I, I I ran over you. I'll let you finish. What were, what were you going to say? Uh, just you know, as far as putting that Diamonds and Pearls band together, we did come from different places. Some people came, you know, Sonny came from the same place as Prince, kind of uh, literally and musically yeah. in a lot of ways. But mm -hmm. most of the other guys, um, obviously, and Rosie had the gospel background and all that. Me, not so much, although I played with the Steels. I learned some stuff from them. But, you know, <laughs> I grew up playing classical piano, jazz gigs around town at that time. So, you know, I was bringing, bringing that with me. Um, the yeah. story I love to tell is the day of the first rehearsal, with that band we were just jamming prince kept telling me to lay out <laughs> and uh then afterwards or on the break whatever he came he's like tommy you know uh you ever heard grand central station and i was like nope and he was like that explains it <laughs> this is like which just to me is like i can't believe i was so out of my element in some ways you know i didn't have that repertoire i had 
you know, I knew Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, but I didn't know that next level. And I knew Sly, but I didn't know Larry. So it was talk about going to school. I would say working with Prince, like going to school for me, it was like I was going to school and going to night school. 